Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to be talking about subdivision services. Alan Hawks is here. Uh, one of the experts <laughs> that I go to oftentimes when I'm asking questions about this kind of thing. So we're really excited to have Alan here and he's going to talk a little bit about what subdivision surfaces are and how you can use them in 3D modeling. So stay tuned for that in the second hour. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thanks, Alex. First in from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Habitat 67 was an architect student concept designed before CAD, all paper drawing and hand-built models. Part of it was built for Expo 67 in Montreal. It has now been completed in Unreal Engine. Thoughts? I was really fascinated by this. Craig sent this to me yesterday, and I, I was, I'm really glad he brought it up here. Um, so Habitat 67 was a concept, um, again, 50 years ago. Uh, and and there, are, there were a handful of people that were really thinking about these things here. I think that uh, Courtney has a picture of it there. Um, but there was a... Um, uh, a lot of people thinking, you know, Paolo Soleri was thinking about things called arcologies. Um, this is another take on that, um, you know, as far as the, you know, the look and how do you create a new way of how people live together? Because a lot of the things that we have in our current cities uh, just doesn't work. <laughs> and so, uh, there, and so the, you know, how do they were rethinking this a long time ago, knowing that, 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 the way we had built up cities wasn't really conducive to interacting with each other, wasn't really conducive to, you know, a lot of live work type experiences. And so it's really interesting. Of course, most of those things they were thinking about in the 60s and 70s were way ahead of their time. And it wasn't really ever going to work back then because they didn't have the internet. And, and the reason I say that is because there's so many things that now we can do because we can work from work from home and we can be connected with each other. And a lot of those things just didn't exist back then. And so uh, it's really great that I guess Epic partnered with this architect to to actually um, build build this out, um, and so being able to visualize it and see where it really meant to go. There were again, like Arcosanti, there were a lot of um, things that were uh, experimented with, and when you see it, what was built was only you know a small fraction of what was planned. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what I can't figure out, and maybe if it's an Unreal Engine, we can uh, determine that, is how do the people in the top apartments get to their apartment? There seem to be no stairwells and no vertical places to put elevators. Are there a series of escalators? Or I no. think they just went through each apartment. There was like a little cubby hole, and you go, hey, That makes hey, it convenient. You have all it your creates, neighbors coming through your living room. It, comes, it, it creates a lot of connection. You know, you can say, hey, Frank, hey, Susan. You know, you're like walking through. It's like a little village. No, I, I, I'm sure that there was some way to do that, but it would be interesting to see uh, what that looks like. You know, I, I think that, that this is something I've wanted to do with some other ideas around urban development. And I think that being able to visualize them and be able to walk through them and figure out how you're getting to the upper apartments, I think would be um, an amazing uh, thing to do in the future. So hopefully we'll see more visualization of both the stuff in the past, but also stuff in the future. All right, let's go to the next question. Next up, Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, asking, morning, everyone. Could the panel recommend a sturdy wireless mic system that would allow me to extend display out to a second monitor for a PC in which premises policy won't let me hardwire or run cabling? Thanks. Uh, go, Jason. Sure. Uh, take a look at Monoprice part number 16049. I'll put the link in chat. I think that'll do it for you. Can you explain it a little bit more? 
Yeah, sure. Sorry. Um, it, it's basically just um, a wide-eye extender, so it'll use its own implementation of the Wi-Fi spectrum to uh, allow up to, I think it's 4K60. They claim a 30-meter range, but, you know, that that by itself doesn't really mean very much. Really, it's, it's a set of, um, you know, a, a codec, a coder and a decoder that are very intentionally just kind of wed to each other. And that'll just give you HDMI with power straight through. I've been experimenting with some that have USB-C uh, power connections, and I just couldn't find it. I was trying to find it quickly. Um, but there's a couple of them that will do it. There, you, you will see a fair number of wireless HDMI. The main thing is, what is it going through? So how fa- does it have to go through any walls? Does it have, and does it have much of a distance? Um, in short distances, less than 30 feet, you're going to find a lot of HDMI extenders or wireless extenders that work uh, fairly well. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. If it's a modern television set that ha- connects over Wi-Fi to the internet uh, and you have a Windows machine, you can just go to an external display wirelessly and it will probably find it and you can uh, send it, add it as an external monitor, a wireless external monitor, as long as both your computer and your TV are on the same local area network. Sorry, there. I was trying to. I was desperately trying to find this wireless uh, uh, transmitter, but I didn't buy it. On, this is the this is the problem when I don't buy things from Amazon. It's hard for me to figure out where I bought them. <laughs> so usually that that usually I have one source of uh, of of of, of truth. Um, next question. And it's from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, asking thoughts on Adobe's mic check algorithm. Adobe account required. There's a link to it. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I, uh, I went there just before showtime and gave it a shot. Uh, what you do is you click on the link, you enter your Adobe credentials so you can get into the Adobe Inner Sanctum. And um, it, uh, it asks you a number of questions, then you engage your microphone and read, and it will come back with uh, scoring on uh, you're too close, you're far, too much noise, uh, too much echo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know how great it works because I failed. You failed? You failed? It's the Apex channel. You, you just turn it off. You'll be fine. <laughs> or it has to fail like yours did. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ow. Uh, next, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, how do you manage craft services for a crew? Do you build a client or do you build the cost into your rate? I go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I would build it into the rate and just add it, depending upon the size of the crew, have a number and a Talk to the craft service person you like to work with or a company that you like to work with work with uh, to provide craft services. And depending upon how elaborate that can be, that can be very expensive or can be, you know, pretty cheap. It depends on how happy you want to keep that crew. Uh, and then just uh, build that in as maybe not even a visible line item into your budget. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Courtney on it. It was very interesting. I worked at a studio in Philadelphia uh, the difference in the craft services that was for TV spots or film spots. The film people knew how to do the craft services. So I'm sure they uh, had bigger budgets and they had bigger food. And it don't ever bring out pizza or Happy Meals. It's not going to make for a happy crew. Happy Meals? You, you don't like Happy Meals? Um, I, yeah. I, they make me happy, but my tummy isn't happy. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that... Uh, <laughs> there are times when you pull out pizza because you just you're in a place where you can't figure out how to solve that problem uh, for that. And usually, people, if, if it's been a long day, will still like the pizza. Um, but the uh, what I will say is that yeah, TV, TV tends not to have they 
I, I figured it out that mostly TV just they churn a lot more. the The budget for a film is so unconnected to the day the day costs of production that they tend to spend a lot more on it, um, and uh, and they tend to specialize in it. And the problem is the culture in film production is pretty ex- uh, pretty high expectation. Um, I know that even when we're working on live streams, if if it's a film crew that's going to show up, I know we're all going to eat well. So, um, so you know, I think that you know, for those types of things, it usually is itemized out. If you have a small team, I, I think you can fold it in and kind of just say, you know, this is the team, and you don't really talk about it. And there's just a logistics, you know, cost or something that wraps a whole bunch of things into it. When you have a larger team, you do have to break it out, um, and especially if you're working in an event center because it's highway robbery. So the event center is going to cost, you know, $125 a person, um, you know, for, you know, and and it's not very good food. It's like, a, it's just, it is complete robbery. So we itemize that all out. And the reason we do that is to make sure that our budget, you know, our budget jumped up by thousands of dollars and we want to, we're throwing somebody under the bus and it's not going to be us. You know, so we just throw the event facility under the bus and say, they're charging us this much for per person and you can't, we can't get, we can't bring anything in. Um, and so they're under the bus. They go. <laughs> go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that's that's an important part. And if you're in a shooting in a hotel, usually they prevent you from bringing any external food, and you have to use their banquet services to even provide craft service for the crew. Uh, another thing to think of is if it's a union contract, there's something called French hours, which is a a strange uh, type of contract, but it is can be negotiated on some films and TV shows where they don't have meal breaks and there has to be food available all the time uh, for the crews so they can break and eat whenever they have a chance. Uh, so take a look and make sure if it's a, if it's a, uh, a union contract, see if they're doing French hours because that will definitely change the cost of your craft services or food supplies for that, you know, food breaks, time supply for the catering, et cetera. Yeah, and it really depends on the local at that point because I know I know for where up in San Francisco, at least for events, we can't you know it's meal penalties. So the other thing you end up with is when you deal with all the all the crafty, the dealing with the timing of everything because usually it's three to five hours after the after the call time, at least in up north. So we have you know at five hours we have to we have to break everybody. And when we, when we say five hours, it's five hours and not one minute. <laughs> so so I've um, I I missed that window by about um, five minutes one time, and it cost me twenty six thousand dollars. And so so the um, not that I'm bitter. <laughs> so um, but uh, uh, so and the problem you get into is with live events with film. You can you know there's there's some movement. With live events, you have another live show coming up. And so you end up getting caught into this circle of meal penalties. That's why it got so expensive was because there was no break again until the evening. And so you're, you know, by the, by the end, we were paying like 3X, you know, for a te- team of a lot of people. So, so you end up in a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a cycle. So in, in addition to, uh, I know this is a, probably a whole other subject, but in addition to whether you do line items, you know, paying attention to how you deal with craft services. And people do make a bunch of decisions. If you show up and there's a bunch of pastries, people are like, what the what? You know, like, you know, especially when you have a team coming in, you don't want to feed them sugar in the morning. Just, you know, like, like you really want eggs and things because that's going to keep them going. You feed them a bunch of donuts and bagels and pastries and they'll be, they'll crash before lunch. Um, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. How do you work a per diem into that? I know it's tough when you excuse the crew to go somewhere to get them back. But um, I guess that's a Courtney question. Uh, well, per diem usually is only uh, if you're not um, 
uh, if you're on a distant location, usually if you're within the studio area, you normally don't pay, pay per diems. So if you break, uh, a lot of times uh, you can break the crew for an hour and not provide a meal and they have to go out and forage for food on their own. Or if you break them for less than an hour, then you have to provide food for them. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of, I mean, again, there's probably a whole uh, second hour on union rules. <laughs> so we probably, probably be a good second hour for a Friday. Uh, next question. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada. The A10 mini product line is a desktop switcher. However, many users put them inside of a rack. With knowledge of how customers use these products, would it not make sense for the air intake vent to be on the front and the exhaust at the rear? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, no. Because if you look at all the ATEM products, the switchers, uh, they have uh, not a lot of surface space available on the rack because it's full of I.O. plugs and connectors, etc. So there's not room to put a large fan there. And uh, for the desktop switchers, they want to keep a low profile on them. So you don't want them very high. That means the, uh, they can't put a fan uh, intake on the front and exit on the back because, A, the back is still taken up with all your I.O. And the front is sitting down as close to the surface as possible. So you don't want to have big vents at the front. Uh, so they chose to cross-circulate. In other words, suck the air in from the side, one side and out the other side. So as long as there's a pathway in and out and it goes across the circuit board, it's a valid uh, air pathway. But if you're putting it in a rack, I know it is a problem if you have a very tight rack and your uh, input and output are very close to the walls of a rack, you know, the sides of the rack uh, can be a problem. But it's unfortunately the only uh, real estate they had available to put the fans in. Yeah, I, I think that in general, I would say that there are other ATEMs that are really built for that. So while people are doing it, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of things you can use. I mean, you can use a wrench as a hammer, but usually you just want to use the hammer as a hammer. Um, and and I think that in, in this case, when you're starting to rack mount, and we've done it, we've taped them in, but you know that it's kind of a kludge. And so there are other switchers that Blackmagic makes. Now, I wish that Blackmagic actually made one without any, we saved a bunch of money and just didn't put any interface on it and just had the stuff on the back and then let us access it over software because we may make it $1,000 less or $500 less or whatever because um, that's what we really want is something that we can, can go, that can just be hidden because most of us, I don't hit my key. I hit my keys a little bit. But very rarely, and the vast majority of them, I don't, have, I don't think they have ever been hit. You know, there's, there's these ATEMs have an enormous number of buttons, and none of us actually use them. Uh, next question. From Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington, asking for a large standing desk for Zoom use, etc. How would you handle the additional length for cables? Tower and UPS will stay on the floor. Three monitors, USB mic on a low-profile arm, headset, etc., and will an MV7 mic work okay and a long USB? Go, Jason. Oh, boy. Um, a lot of questions. I, I, I'll answer the general gist of it. You need a good enough standing desk such that um, if you're going to have a tower, it's going to be attached to the lower end of the desk. I, I think that's far and away the easiest way to do it. Almost every standing desk has an accessory that will allow you to wrap around um, or get a Mac because they're much smaller. They're so cute. Yeah, the the um uh the main thing is is that when you're up, you want to have you know some slack, and usually I try to attach that slack to something on the desk, so that there's a little bit of slack there. There's a lot of slack below it, but if it 
it gets caught in any way, shape, or form. You want to be pulling against some kind of connection and not necessarily against the um, whatever it's connected to. I mean, it's that's the thing you worry about all the time when you plug about anything in is that it's going to get stress put on it, um, you know, on, on that connector. So that's the thing you want to watch for. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, they make a nice basket uh, that you can lay the cables in and they sort of lay over each other so that if the thing goes up and down, uh, you don't have them cable tied to uh, something that's going to cause that problem. Good, Jason. Um, yeah, on a, on a more serious note, just about every standing desk company makes what looks like a, a bunch of interlocking pieces that turns into, I can only describe it as what it looks like a backbone. And what it will do is just kind of crinkle up and down. And if you're careful, you can run your cords through there, at least your big heavy ones. Um, and, you know, typically you'll have four channels going all the way down um, and that will go up and down and it, it won't. It, it'll basically make it snag-proof. Next question. Bundesak Georgi from Dharamshala, India, asking, Greetings, how do I capture stadium sound of spectators for a live stream of a soccer match? I was thinking of laying an XLR cable on the sidelines. Can the panel suggest an XLR mic budget, uh, $100 to $150? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you could use a, a SM58, sure. Uh, a good cardioid uh, microphone. It could be a cardioid condenser, but it has to have fairly good wind screening or pop filtering to keep the wind off of it. Uh, don't put it on the sidelines anywhere near people. You got to raise it up uh, at least 10 to 15 feet in the air. So no one person can get very close to that microphone so that it can gather the large group of people in the stands rather than some bozo that's standing next to the mic and talking about something personal that's now going out over the air. So you got to make sure that it, it's uh uh, at least uh, 10 to 12 feet away from where anyone could speak closely into it. And uh, you could run an XLR dynamic mic uh, or an, uh, you know, an electret, I mean, a, a condenser or electret condenser uh, would be fine for pickup of uh, stadium sounds. It doesn't have to be super high resolution. Yeah, one of the things that we've done um, a fair bit also is use shotgun mics and put them in an XY position. And so there's, and there are actually XY systems. And so you actually want those mics to be tip to tip. So you have, if you think about the mic here like this, you want them to be at a 90 degree angle to each other and just, just about to touch each other here. And there are rigs that will do this for you. And you put those in an XY position. Um, and there are mics that are set that way. There are, there are mics that are set that way, but we use the actual shotgun mics for these because the, the off-axis rejection to the side accentuates some of the stereo um, effect to it um, that, that's there. So that XY, putting that up exactly the way Courtney talked about, you got to get it up high and get it out, um, you know, oftentimes will give you kind of a nice stereo sound if that's what you're looking for. Um, you know, and, and, and it also, because it's right there, it's that point of view, um, you know, in a, in a stereo format. The other places, other ways we've done it is to just throw small omnis uh, labs, you know, in a couple different locations, um, and uh, and and pulled that in. The problem is, is, you get a little, you can get a little of this wash because they're they're picking the same thing up from different distances, and so you have latency issues. Remember that you lose about a um, a second every uh, about a millisecond every foot. So um, so as you start to move, if they're if they're three hundred feet apart or or hundred meters apart. Um, you're going to end up with a third of a second between the two. So if there's something loud that happens, it happens in different places. That's why oftentimes we, we've kind of moved to that XYs because they both hear it at the same time. Uh, next question. From Brett Below in Appleton, Wisconsin. 
Fred asks, in trying to extend the 10-foot USB-C cable limit for Osbot Tiny cameras and others, has anyone tested the USB-C plus fiber optic cables commonly used for VR gaming? This one is available on Amazon. It's 16 feet long, and there's a link to it. You know, I haven't tested it yet. I am trying to find ones that are a bit longer. Uh, I have not been successful. I'm not using the Osbot. I'm using the Insta360s, having the same problem. Anything over 10 feet, I've been having it. It seems to power up, but then it immediately drops off. So there's something going on there. Um, but I haven't tested these fiber ones. We'll see what we can do there. And a quick reminder that you can ask questions throughout the hour. Uh, so you can ask questions right now, throw them into Makana. Um, we've got uh, subdivision services for the second hour with, uh, with Alan Hawks. So if you've got questions about sub D services, uh, go ahead and throw those in. But you can also still ask questions for the first hour and of course, vote on those questions so we know which ones you want to answer next. All right, next question. Next one isn't for me. I enjoy folks sharpening their panel skills on Tuesday's show workshop. Josh and Bill are doing a great work there, helping folks prepare for on-air duties on office hours. Have you tried this workshop? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it was uh, kind of interesting. I've been away for a while, came back, and uh, the reader workshop became the show workshop. It's a very logical um, progression because it's not just readers. There are people that are panelists, potential hosts, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what they're doing it, uh, that's kind of cool, and if you haven't checked out, you should see it. Um, is that they're emulating an actual live show with everything that goes into making a show. So it's an excellent opportunity uh, to try things out if you always wanted to be a panelist. But we're a little nervous about uh, the logistics and continuity. Uh, go into the, uh, uh, the show workshops Tuesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern, excuse me, Pacific, and uh, get a, a little uh, a tip from uh, Josh and Bill. It's good. Yeah, and if you're getting started and you're trying to figure out any of those steps, it really makes a difference to have a little bit of time to, to work on that. Next question. Next one in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Compare the OWC Mac Mini M-Series hubs to the Satechi hubs, especially the hard drive capabilities. Go, Jason. Okay, I looked and looked, and for the life of me, couldn't find any Satechi hub um, other than a USB-C model. So this is going to be really easy. This is the, the mini stack from OWC. It does Thunderbolt 3 all the way through. It has um, the ability to put in an NVMe that is super fast. It can also fit, an, in addition to that, a full-sized hard drive. And then you have a full-sized um, hub protocol. So you get one Thunderbolt in and three out. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I did find it because it's right here underneath my uh, Mac M1 Mini. It fits exactly in that size. Um, it's, it, it also helps the cooling that goes through the uh, bottom of your uh, M1, and it does all of the things that you just mentioned there that the OWC does. I have a feeling OWC uh, took a little uh, inspiration from the original Satechi. I have both of them. The OWC build quality is much better. <laughs> like it's, it's a, you know, it, it's, it costs more, um, but it is, they kind of, they may have looked at what Satachi. I got the Satachi one. I replaced it because it was not reliable. Uh, so I have one, I have one Satachi and one of the OWCs. And I will say that the, the, the OWC one, the, the build quality and, and, and is yours actually Thunderbolt, Mitch? Yes. It has a little Thunderbolt. Uh, okay adjustment on the back and the one that I, I could did. not yeah. find a thunderbolt version now admittedly i have the one that i have is USB-C, but i had some issues with the drive appearing and disappearing constantly <laughs> so so that that was the that was the uh, kind of the, the end of that for me uh next question from douglas carmichael asking even with an unlimited plan verizon throttles video traffic to a max of 720p on 5g and 4g lte 
if you don't pay $10 a month extra for premium video? Is it worth paying for better video quality on a phone? Go, Jason. I suppose that matters um, really how much you use your phone and um, how close your eyes are to the pixels. Um, yeah, mine is completely untethered and it, and it doesn't do any of this. So I've never seen 720p on, on, on the phone. Go ahead, Courtney. If you're doing a, a live stream vlog every day or something, yeah, sure. I guess it's worth it uh, to keep your viewers happy that are viewing it on larger screens uh, for a streaming show. Uh, if you're just doing FaceTime to other people on their phones, then no, it doesn't make any sense, I don't think, because you probably won't see the difference between 720p and 1080p if you're looking at it on a you know, six-inch screen. Next question. Matt Parker from Sarasota, Florida has a question. Looking for a good VGA EDID emulator dongle for Max Mini plugged into a KVM switch. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, go ahead, Jason. All right, I'll bite. Um, Monoprice has solved every VGA problem I've ever had. So I, I would start there. It's really cheap, even if you get it wrong. Yeah, and I believe that Apple makes one as well. So I think that Apple makes a, uh, I don't know if it's an, it does an EDID, but I do believe that the Apple, uh, Apple makes its own VGA uh, converter. And I would usually start there with an Apple product because the, oftentimes the, their little converters might be a little bit more expensive, but they oftentimes are a lot more stable. Uh, next question. Tim Holmes, San Lorenzo, California. Is there a guidance document anywhere on the internet that would be great to give people to help with on screen graphic design? Something like maximum amount of lines, font size, and examples. You know, I don't know if there is. We should build one, <laughs> but, but we don't. You know, I think that it, it, a lot of it always comes down to it depends. You know, there are definitely reasons that you break those rules. Uh, you know, there's there are a lot of basic guides that we get into. I mean, when people ask for a rule of thumb, a lot of times, you know, I'll say, you know, if you have more than 20 words and it's not a quote, so a quote might break that. But if there's more than 20 words on your slide, you have a serious problem. You know, 99% um, of the time, not 100% of the time. So sometimes you'll put a bunch of quote, but if you're not quoting or putting a bunch of headlines on for effect or something like that, more than 20 words is problematic. And then the other thing to think about is when you think about how many lines, you shouldn't almost ever have lines on your, I know this is gonna be really hard for people listening to pro things, but you shouldn't have lines. Like you should have images <laughs> that have little things underneath them or around them or things pointing at them. But when you start putting, like, the, the first thing that, what everybody does is has lots of bullets. And the best thing to do is get, never have a bullet, ever, on your, on your thing. If you want to stand out, just give up the bullets. You know, all, all, all of them. And don't have anything coming down in stacks. And definitely don't have it all come up in one, in one slide. If you put it up on one slide, they're listening to you or reading the slide. They're not doing both. And so what you want to do is you just want to put up exactly what you want to show and what you're talking about as you talk about it. And that takes some rehearsal and that takes some plan. And, and um, you know, usually I, I feel like slide decks are created by people who write lots of papers and they take that paper and they think that it's a lot less because it's not a 30 page paper and they put it into the slide um, and, uh, or they use them as their reading notes. And there's a note section in your presentation tools. All the presentation tools have a second screen that does notes. You don't put the notes on the page. You put the images on the page. The, the slide deck should support what you're talking about, not be what you're talking about. Now go ahead, Mitchell. And Tim, resist the Helvetica. Nah, Helvetica's not that bad. <laughs> I don't know about the font. New, though. You got to do new Helvetica new. All right, next question. 
Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas is here. OpenAI has an API. Does that mean you can build a chatbot similar to ChatGPT with the same OpenAI technology? I go, John. Sure you can, because this is exactly what Jasper and a lot of these third-party apps have done with GPT-3. GPT-3 came out in 2020. They all wrote APIs into GPT-3. Then ChatGPT came out in November of 2022. It's about 10 lines of code. You get your API key from OpenAI, and you're off to the races. Next question. Todd Raines, Allen, Texas, asking, can you or would you convert M43 to Canon or other mount using an adapter? Any pros and cons? And will a power zoom work through that adapter? Go ahead, Jason. I suppose you could. It is much more common to go the other way around, getting Canon glass and putting it on a micro four thirds camera. The reason being, in general, that MFTs are rarely full frame. And when they are, they get a little bit weird. There's, there's, it's hard to describe, but unless it is an absolutely perfect fit, you end up with strange. I, I don't even know how to describe Vignetti. it. It's <laughs> distortion. Yeah, yeah. You don't want, usually want to take your 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 um, micro four thirds, and I'm assuming you're talking about micro four thirds. M43 can be a couple different kinds of lenses, but um, but the micro. If you're talking about micro four thirds, the the real issue you get into is that yeah, that's not designed. You're putting a lens, and there are some that'll convert out. But exactly what Jason said, there can be some distortion because it wasn't designed to go to the same size sensor. Um, so going from Canon to Micro Four Thirds is really common, as Jason said. Uh, going the other way is not very common and not recommended. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Ableton has introduced a third-generation push controller that can act like a standalone instrument, not just a live controller. Is the hardware-software hybrid the future of electronic music? I don't know what the future of electronic music is. It might be AI, <laughs> but 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 the uh, but I think that um, as you look at it, I think that there's something really interesting about the integration of um, having a lot of hardware um, that is is tied in. There's something um, organic about it that you when you have controllers that you can kind of feel your way through um, something in music that is hard to do in software. It's not impossible. There are some people who just build their entire, all their music on a piece of software. But I think that there is something about listening to it and tweaking something and finding some oftentimes happy accidents that makes a big difference. Go ahead, Courtney. It's also the past of electronic music, but because for the last decade or so, any uh, digital slash uh, hybrid uh, synths that have uh, digital control of an analog synth or uh, digital synths uh, also have MIDI in and out and have the ability to use those MIDI outs into a workstation to trigger other stuff, uh, including other instruments uh, that you have uh, in your workstation. So, you know, it's been used that way for years. I'm not sure what this new one, how different this new one is since you can use it as a controller or as a synth, standalone synth. And most standalone synths that had MIDI in and out and MIDI recording have the capability to do that back for 20 years or so. Yeah, go Jason. Yeah, I mean, just look at the 20-year-old, you know, MIDI woodwind stuff that always kind of freaks me out. The, the, the you know, bizarre little saxophone or a clarinet. Um, having been on stage with I, I would say some of the electronic music greats, if they're really good, um, I will never forget watching BT just straight away sequence in real time. And like he was doing it with keyboards, then he, he would go somewhere else. And, and like, you know, it truly was a live thing. It wasn't just a series of mixes. So 
I don't know. I mean, whatever the next future is, I, I don't think anyone knows. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul wants to know the Marshall CV420NE NDI HX3 releases next week, which is a high-impact content streaming camera. What are its uses? 100-degree, no spherical curvature, NDI HX3 plus HDMI plus USB 3.0, 9.2 megapixel, 1 over 1.8-inch sensor, UHD 380-40 by 2160, 60 frames per second, $1,099. Go ahead, Courtney. Thanks for that rundown. Yes, that is exactly what it is. I think the difference is they've made these little cameras looks like this. In the past, uh, they're going to premiere this one at Infocom. It's kind of a squashed cylindrical case there with a little lens in the front of it. Box camera. We used to call these box cameras. But the difference is this one has so many outputs, and it does NDI uh, internally in it. So uh, it can deliver an NDI signal as well as a streaming signal and HDMI and USB 3. And it does uh, also has control signal that goes in so that you can take a... Uh, uh, 1080, it's a 4K sensor, and then it has a steerable 1080p uh, window or region of interest. I guess it's, it differs. It takes a different amount of scaling, so it does zoom, pan, tilt, and zoom electronically inside that 4K window to give you an HD output uh, that you can control remotely from it without having to actually move the camera. Next question. From Simon Ray in Midlands, UK. Can Alex remind us what phrase to use in mid-journey to get a clean white background, please? Are there equivalent phrases to provide green or black backgrounds suitable for keen? You know, I find that um, you can do it over a plain black background, plain white background. It oftentimes does change the feel of it. So uh, I find that if you do a plain black background, it, 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 the once it thinks you want a dark image, like it gets dark. <laughs> like, you know, and so, so um, a lot of times I find that the plain white background works better um, and Apple, the keynote keys it really well. So that's why I use it that way. Um, but, but yeah, so the plain white background works. I've done green. The problem, you know, with green is that in a lower resolution, you know, the keen actually doesn't look as good as some of the white stuff that, that does it. And, we'll, and I have to admit that I build, part of why it works is because I build my decks over white. And the reason that I build my decks over white is I still have people who print them. And so um, there was one time when I, you know, I used to make all my decks over black and I literally had a client print them out and bring them to the, to the, to set them down on the table so that we could go through them. And they were like wet. <laughs> like, and I realized that I was sucking up an enormous amount of ink. Um, you know, every time I made a, because people were doing this and it was like just literally emptying the printer by having a black background and getting printed out. And so I moved to white backgrounds um, because of that. I may move back if I if I really feel like no one's gonna print them, but people still print them. And so it's really an unfortunate thing to put make heavy color or other things like that. That's why I make them, that's 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 my, um, uh, yeah, that's why, that's why that happens. And so, so anyway, so I, um, uh, I do them over white. I say, a lot of times I'll say 20, 20% uh, edge buffer and over a plain white background. Um, and I get, you know, something that's in the center that's there. I also find that it's easier if I don't, if I'm looking for objects with a plain white background, I don't define the aspect ratio. So almost everything for me, it's almost automatic to do 16 by nine because I'm going to use them as a slide. Or I'm going to use something else. If I just leave that aspect ratio out, it's going to give me a square image. It's going to put the image in the center. Um, and then the, the other thing that I've been playing with that is just so good. I only started doing this over the last couple of days is I start with the prompt that I want in chat GPT. 
I'm working on a logo. It's about this product. You are a designer and, uh, and a prompt expert, and I need you to write me a prompt to create this logo for Midjourney. <laughs> and ChatGPT will pump out a paragraph, and you just plug it. You, know, you just copy and paste it into into um, uh, into Midjourney, and boom! Like, and, 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 and the paragraph that doesn't look like it's going to work. Like, it, it, you do it, and you're like, I don't know if, if Midjourney will understand this. And it seems like the machines talk to each other really well. Um, so, uh, which I is a little bit. Um, I just started doing that, and I'm just getting really incredible <laughs> results. Anyway, go ahead, Courtney. I think since it's open source, what you should do is create a, a shortcut that's dash dash Johnny Ive, and it'll automatically put it on a seamless white background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the funny thing is, is that when you're doing presentations, the other thing to to remember is you can do in the style of, and in the style of is really powerful. One of the things that I do a lot of is in the style of, like if I'm trying to do a kind of a fun ex- explanation, I just go in the style of Pixar. And, you know, so it's over a white background. I have like three people that are, you know, overwhelmed, you know, looking around in the style of, uh, or I had a, I had a, um, I'll try to find the image, but I, I, I had this guy that I was talking about how people, I was talking about presentations and, and the fact that we're not even good at doing events in person because we always have those open mics and some person goes there and, and, uh, you know, Every open mic is the enemy and from, from an event production person because you're just like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to talk for 10 minutes about nothing that no one, nothing that anybody cares about. And then they're going to ask a question that no one asked, no one wanted to ask, but they got up there, they had to say their piece. And so they have a, they end it with a question that no one cares about. And so I was talking about how like, you know, we're, I was obviously talking about Makana and how we move it into text and the reason we move it into text is so that everyone can we can all agree on what we're going to ask and it doesn't get very long and you don't have an open mic. And, uh, but I, what I did is I had a guy yelling into a mic. I said, guy yelling into fifties mic over a plain white background in the style of Pixar. And you just get this really funny guy with a big head with this thing over. It's great. It's a great slide. I'll try to find it for you. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. I found that when you, I'm trying to create a keynote presentation, I always say in the style of Alex Lindsay, and it helps me get the job. <laughs> there you go. How does it know? Uh, next question. Next one in from Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. Any external software audio mixers available to use in the cloud? VMix Productions, I imagine, use VMix Mixer, but external mixer would be great, such as for pre-fader functions. I think I think that the um, SSL is is the one that I think is working on this the most. I mean, there's a couple different ones. There's uh, Sienna um, is is designed to to integrate hardware on one side and then be able to do the mix on the other. So that's kind of a you know kind of a heavier lift. I don't know of a lot of um, basic ones um, that that are there. Um, Harrison also Harrison was bought by I believe SSL, um, and um, they had a mix bus. Mix bus was their product and they have hardware. So I expect to see a lot more of this. It's really important. This is one of the, the things that is the, one of the missing links in online production is, is in being in the cloud and really having a solid mixing solution. Um, and we haven't really seen it come out in a way that is remotely affordable. I mean, I think that's part of the problem. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, along the same lines, we, you and I have to set up a time to do a, a, uh, sound desk lab later this week if you're available oh maybe uh, early next week all right yeah definitely got to do it i've been I've, I've been giving it a lot of thought like i i keep thinking do i want to just 
show you how to do it or like do it, find the problem and then show how to fix the problem. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a fun problem problem. You'll enjoy it. It's a cool, it's a cool little app. I mean, a lot of, uh, if you're a Mac user, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty it, slick. And the Korg is just, I absolutely love it. it. To be able to adjust how much I'm listening to different apps. I can be on a, uh, a casual zoom call and duck it down and do stuff or share something really quickly. It's, I love it. I love it. I love it. Just a quick reminder that of course you can ask questions in the first hour and the second hour. We've got Alan Hawks here. He's going to be talking about sub D services in the second hour. So you can throw out uh, questions in for Alan, or you can ask general questions about media production in the first hour. And of course, don't forget to vote on those questions so that we uh, make sure we know which ones to get to first. All right, let's go to the next question. Greg Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Has anyone been using a second screen in extended mode, not mirrored, on the M1 or M2 iPads? And how has this changed your workflow? Go ahead, Jason. Every now and again, yes. I find that it makes for an extremely compelling demo, and I'm I'm kind of so quick. It's almost like I don't have patience to do this kind of stuff unless I have no alternative. Um, yeah, the, the latency still bothers me even when I'm directly plugged in. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, what's the most efficient way to back up a CentOS LAMP server to a Synology NAS? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jason. The same way I would back up just about anything that is even remotely Linux-based. In, in this case, I'd use the rsync panel, and um, I'll put a link in the chat, but basically, yeah, you just... you fire up rsync and you give it the right keys and um and it targets it and you're done next question gordon lake los angeles california wants to know the personal computer wave produced bill gates and steve jobs cable tv gave you ted turner the internet mark zuckerberg what is the next wave and what industries will produce billionaires from the wave good gordon well, it's obviously we're just just starting to crest now. AI and Sam Altman, uh, CEO of uh, OpenAI, and Jeffrey Hinton, who used to be at Google, now is unemployed, <laughs> and Predator doesn't like Jeffrey because he's ducking it down. Uh, AI, so he's probably not going to benefit from it and become a billionaire. But uh, Altman probably is going to do pretty well. I think. Go ahead, Chris. I think it's time to fix some of the things that we already have. I, I have said for a long time that email is broken. It's completely broken. And I think that if somebody could figure out a way, and it may involve a little AI, it may involve uh, something like uh, some of the stuff that Box is currently talking about doing, the, the online sh uh, you know storage company. But I think that a way to manage our information uh, that comes in and goes out in a way that is uh, uh, leaps and bounds better than what email is, I, is long overdue. I think email is a 40-plus-year-old technology, and it needs to be thrown out, completely rethought, and restructured and rebuilt from the ground up. I really think that email needs to have a, a limit, so I can just say, I will not accept, unless I approve them, I will not accept a email longer than six lines. Like just you know, like 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 just I think like and and that would I would give that to like three people like you can send me an email longer than six lines I think that that would be that would greatly improve and then and then you would just call it Slack all right um, go ahead John 
Yeah, Courtney, you hit the nail on the head. So the the boys over at OpenAI have already they've got a thirty billion dollar valuation on OpenAI already, and then there's probably four or five other unicorns coming out of AI in the next three years. Yeah, it'll, it, it's um, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting how that all all this pans out. But I will say, as someone who's definitely embraced it, it's it's fun. I it, it'll be fun right up until the end. You know, it's it's like being it's like being a happy cow in California. So all great, great for just a little while. Next question. Rob Cardwell from Belfast, Northern Ireland asking, does the panel have any hints or suggestions as to how best to make transparent lower thirds animated titles in Resolve for a live stream? The GoPro Cineform files are too big and the Wirecast struggles with them. Yeah, I don't know why I would do GoPro Cineform files for what you're talking about there. Um, you know, generally what you're going to export out, uh, and I guess if you're on a Windows, it may be different. On a Mac, you're going to export out a, um, usually uh, an Apple ProRes 444, or you're going to render a TGA s- sequence or potentially a ping sequence. You're going to find that the ping doesn't get handled by by a lot of software as well as um, some of the other sequences. Uh, some of the software does okay, but a lot of hardware can get, you can get, you can start to see some aliasing along the edges, the way the ping is, the way the ping handles that makes it sometimes a little harder to key. Um, and so, uh, so, but sequences are something that you, you oftentimes you can export out and bring it into your software. But Apple ProRes 444, of course, is going to have an uh, a, a alpha channel. Now, the old fashioned way to do it, I don't even know. I, I don't know the last time I actually did this, but you can export in a QuickTime format called animation. <laughs> That's what we used to always export everything out in is animation with an alpha channel. Uh, I haven't done that since ProRes 4444 came out. So I don't I don't remember whether it still even works or does that or or whatever, but it still works, Mitch. You're, you're uh, confirming that it's still, uh, it's still an active format. Old habits die hard. Yeah. That's all I can say. Exactly. So, so anyway, uh, animation may be something that you can put out as well. Um, I definitely wouldn't use the pro, the GoPro Cineform for that. Um, I don't even know if I didn't know that it had an alpha channel for Cineform, so I probably wouldn't wouldn't use that. Um, and so, I'm assuming you're not trying to build the, these. Tra- you have the lower thirds, and you're trying to render them out. So, the first thing I would render them out at is Apple ProRes. If you're on a Mac, if you're not on a Mac, then I would look at sequences, you know, image sequences, or the animation codec. Um, and I will admit that I. I don't know how to manage alpha channels very well on a on a PC. I probably do ping sequences. Uh, next question. Next one in is from you, Alex Lindsay from Novato, California. How do you approach building a photoreal 3D object from a real life object? I was wondering if I was going to try to drag Alan into this uh, into this conversation here. Alan, what do you do to how do you approach that process? You know, um, when you're trying when someone says I want to have a photoreal version of of the, uh, you know, of an object. Are you talking about like a, an actual product, which I, that, yeah. I deal with a lot of products. Yeah. So right? they give you a product and they say, I, we need a 3d version of this. I, I tend to start with a CAD if they have it. Right? right. Either you get a CAD or a prototype. If you have a CAD, we can bring the CAD directly in and convert it from, you know, CAD format to something suitable for rendering. And then, then you just got to make sure to, Choose a, a render engine that can handle photorealism and have a, an amazing texture artist that can dial in the textures perfectly to match the real world scenario and the yeah. lighting. Got to get. What if you don't? What if they don't? Have, what if they don't have a CAD? What if they give it to you? Then you got to model it. You got to model it from scratch. <laughs> um, I actually find it 
the CADs are kind of ideal for for many things. We've actually polished some CAD workflows, but assuming they use um, a prototype scenario and you actually get a prototype in, uh, you know, because usually you're generating marketing material as products are being designed. But so you'll have to either work with a prototype, assuming they actually have a finished product, then they just literally ship you the product and you're looking at it and taking measurements and doing whatever you need to do to rebuild it. Um, but yeah, that's it. I have to admit that, that what, what ruined me for after, after playing with it was, was getting scans, you know, like, you know, I would get a scan of something and say, okay, this is the, this back then it was a cyberware scan. And I was like, oh, this is so much easier, <laughs> you know, cause a lot of times we'd start with plan views and, and elevation views and so on and so forth. So you could start to figure out what those things were. Then we started scanning them. And now what I do for a lot of things that are um, is photogrammetry, you know, so I'm, I'm going to take a bunch of photos of this. I'm going to generate a 3d model. I'm not going to use that model. Like I'm not going to, you know, like that model is just to make sure that I put all the buttons in the right places and do all the things that need to be done. But, but as a, if I don't have that CAD drawing, um, you know, having that photogrammetry to start with, you know, saves me a lot of time. I don't know if you've played much with photogrammetry on. In yeah, that it, it's actually a kind of ideal, like you said. So if you have a real world product and you have to put it, you know, in the digital world and you're modeling from scratch, trying to do measurements, not necessarily efficient photo photography, trying to get an orthographic view, not necessarily efficient. So photogrammetry is really good to actually get. Uh, it, it's not suitable for a final render by any stretch of the imagination, but at least it gives you the core, like a template to build off of in the digital world, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, that's been done as well. So, Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Senators Markey and Cruz have introduced a bill to require vehicle makers to keep AM radio in vehicles because, quote, AM radio is important for emergency information, unquote. With the diversity of technologies available today, is that still true? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think what they don't understand is that the one of the reasons that their manufacturers are pulling AM radios out of the cars is it's not really compatible because of interference from the CAN bus, which is the communications system that's used in automobiles these days to control everything on the DC uh, over the uh, DC supply lines that are going to everything controls your lights your all the sensors in your car etc plus on electrical vehicles they have high frequency square waves that are coming out and generate so much uh, interference in the AM band that it's going to be almost impossible to filter that out uh, in an AM radio so I think their uh, legislation is not going to make that physical that physics problem go away. So, uh, regardless of how important it is, you know. if you keep the AM radio, it'll just be bad AM. <laughs> go ahead, uh, go ahead, Mitchell. There are a multitude of reasons why that's a bad idea. Uh, one of them is that we have an EAS system, which is supposed to do exactly what they're talking about. Emergency information is supposed to be uh, uh, put out by FM AM weather band, anything uh, that's out there. The other thing is that AM radio uh, is a struggling um, facility medium, and most AM radio stations out there are run on an absolute shoestring budget, which means their reliability is going to be in question. So I would consider that also because you can't hang all of your emergency information on a station that's run by one person and an AI. Go ahead, Jason. Um, this to me comes down to two truths and a lie. Um, the truth, there are still places in this country where you can really only get AM radio. Um, truth, AM radio goes farther than FM radio. Lie, 
that's really what they're after. Like, that's why they're after it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It, it, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the further you are away from that AM transmitter, the worse that interference noise is going to be. But the other thing to consider, too, is, is what the AM stations could do is uh, they're almost all available on streaming networks right now. So uh, a connection to the uh, cellular network in your car would uh, bring in all those AM radio stations via streaming if they just add that to the entertainment system where it comes in packetized digital uh, from uh, LTE or some other type of cellular network, 5G or LTE, so that you can get all those AM stations just streaming instead of uh, transmitted over AM space. A couple months ago, I, I actually talked to a, someone who has an AM radio, and the licensing is different for music if you're a radio station streaming as opposed to uh, streaming streaming. So if you don't have a, if you don't have, uh, a license and you're, you know, you're just doing streaming, your licensing for music is much higher. And, uh, and they were, they're talking about the fact that their, their streaming, uh, listenership is, uh, over five times more than their, than the people who actually listen to their station. Um, he said, but, but we still keep the station up because we need the, we need the, the, the licensing. Um, you know, like it, it costs less to do everything if we do it that way. It's just the way it's the way that it's all been packaged. The whole, like how we manage music copyright is so warped, you know, because of, of trying to protect one thing after another, um, then that it, it still makes sense for them to keep those up. But I, as far as the cars go, we've been listening to cars, engines rev up and down in AM for most of my lifetime, maybe my entire lifetime. <laughs> tractors, especially. Uh, if you will find that tractors um, uh, have a lot more EMF than the cars. Next question. Next question in from Alex Lindsay from Nevada, California. Has anyone installed Final Cut Pro on their iPad? Go ahead, Chris. You know, I was talking with our friend Jeff Greenberg yesterday, and he said, and we were just catching up talking about personal stuff, and then he says, uh, he goes, so, so what do you think about this uh, Final Cut for M1? And I went, that's a good point. They're building it for the iPad Pro, which runs on an M1. And if it runs on an M1, there's really no reason, except for marketing, why technically they can't just... It's, it, there actually it, is. It's not the same build. Like, we, we're building my little drawing app on both M1 and, and iPad. It's, it's, it's in the same wrapper. You're going to da- download it at the same time, yeah. but it's still... There's a lot of technical... They're not like, oh, it can just run. You have to... There are a bunch of libraries that have to be done. So it's not as simple as just making it. It's not it just a checkbox. Okay. No, it's not a checkbox. All I right. promise well, you. <laughs> but but I do think I do think it is a step toward a version of Final Cut that doesn't work on legacy uh, 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 processors. Hundred percent. Like the, yeah. I, I completely agree with you that there, there's going to be a version of Final Cut within the next two years that is just runs on both of them. It's the same app. Right. Yeah. Uh, also, our friend Felipe at nine thirty Pacific th- this morning is going to live stream. The installation and first impressions. He's, he actually has a music video he's going to edit, and he's going to edit it live with an audience starting at 9.30. You could find... Nothing up his sleeve. Nothing up his sleeve. He's, he has no prior uh, knowledge of what's been going on. He's not think it's available it yet. Hopefully, hopefully he doesn't do the live stream uh, and have it be yet. like... Yeah, because I, I, I looked at it before the show. I keep on it'll looking pop, at it going... It'll pop up any moment. It'll pop up, yeah. You you, you have pop faith. Five minutes after Mac break is off the air. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I so. used to get I used to get uh, uh, phantom calls from certain people saying, "Hey, um, you might want to check the App Store." Bye. 
Got to go. Click. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> go ahead, John. The gentleman from the troubled San Francisco stole my answer. Felipe, I put the link in the chat room. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, quick reminder uh, that, that Felipe will be doing this at 9.30 this morning. So half an hour after 9.30 Pacific Standard Time. So not half an hour after this show, he'll be doing a live stream and uh, doing a live edit. I think it's going to be pretty interesting. So we'll see what that looks like. It'll take the first not half hour to just download it, I'm sure. But anyway, well, it's, I'm sure it's going to be a big package. Uh, next question. From Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, asking, how might an industry graphics professional use of AI tools like MidJourney differ from a common user? Would there be a tendency to finish and refine a work with comfortable tools rather than to prompt it into submission? Go ahead, Courtney. And for professionals, too, they probably need it in a higher resolution than MidJourney can deliver. If you're preparing something for print or for billboards, uh, they're going to want something at a higher resolution. So they might use that MidJourney as a start and then load it into Photoshop or some type of intelligent scaler or something, convert it to uh, uh, from a raster artwork to uh, a line-based uh, drawing and then fill it in and, and use their own art tools in, in Adobe Illustrator or any of the other type of uh, illustration tools to complete it. As far as uh, copyright goes uh, and attribution goes, uh, it's still up in the air. Good, Mitchell. I do a lot of motion graphic design work, and uh, I work in the Adobe uh, uh, environment of uh, programs like After Effects and Illustrator, like uh, Courtney was just mentioning. They're doing the smart thing. I, a lot of times I need to go out and find a stock video or uh, piece of artwork um, in order to just build on. It's just easier to do that from scratch. And uh, they're now incorporating uh, AI in their search engine and perhaps in generating uh, some of those uh, elements in uh, AI from their stock library. So I think that's sort of the future of stock music or stock, excuse me, uh, stock uh, graphics uh, programs like that is to use it to support that and enhance that capability. Go ahead, John. Yeah, Mitchell hit the nail on the head. So Adobe's integrating uh, generative art into all of their applications, and they'll they'll be all uh, they'll be all copyrighted material from their stock photography. So they're not scraped off of the internet like Midjourney and all the other ones. That's the battle that's shaping up. Yeah, and I will say the Firefly uh, work looks pretty good. I'm going to try to get into using it soon. Uh, it looks pretty good. It doesn't, I don't know if it has the same fluidity as MidJourney does in any way, shape, or form, but I think that the promise is going to be that it will be generated eventually in geometry for, you know, their substance lines. It'll be generated with alpha channels. It'll be able to generate line art. There's a lot of things that come out of out of uh, um, mid-journey, I was because I was working on logos, and so there's a lot of stuff that I popped out, and I was like, well, now I'm going to have to trace that, <laughs> like, you know, or I'm going to have to have something trace it. I'm not going to be able to use that as a logo, or, or you know, I have to rebuild it from there. So um, so I, I do think that Firefly will have its advantages, even though it may not be quite as creative. I mostly use it. I have to admit that most of the time, the stuff I come up with mid-journey, I don't really look at, like, I'm going to use it verbatim. I look at it as a brainstorming tool. So I'm, you know, now for my presentations, I use it verbatim. I just cut them and go. But for a lot of my, anything that I'm going to be publicly facing, I typically am using um, just, just to think about it. And, and it, again, it thinks of things that I didn't think of. <laughs> and I kind of riff off of that. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Is price the only reason to use PlayOutB over a HyperDeck Mini? Go ahead, Chris. 
It doesn't hurt, but I do think that uh, Jonas, super genius uh, Datel, has put additional features in Playout B that is not part of just a hyperdeck. Um, for example, uh, one is uh, it's very easy to top and tail something if you want to tighten something up, or even you can even take a clip uh, and tail before a problem scene, duplicate that clip and top it after the problem scene and get it to play through both of them. So it goes part A, part B, minus the problem scene in the middle. It's, it's pretty powerful. It's definitely, it's absolutely worth taking a serious look at because it's, you know, it's like super cheap. You can put it on a little Mac Mini or a, one of those little toy things. Uh, it, definitely look at it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Chris there. It makes a lot of sense. And the Playout B just does a better job of managing files. Like you said, top and tails, playlist management, things like that. The real trick would be if Playout B could control Hyperdeck, now you'd have something. Courtney? Uh, yeah, I agree with everything we said before. And also, uh, since Playout B works in a browser in both Mac and PC, uh, and Windows, uh, you don't need any hardware to do it. So it's a lot cheaper there and you're not tied to a piece of hardware, either a Raspberry Pi or you could use a separate, uh, like a stick PC if you want to keep it independent and not run it on the same computer you're running everything else on. Um, and it does add some features like bookmarks, things like that, that we wish Hyperdeck would have been incorporated. And uh, its treatment of time code, I think, is a little bit different too. All right, we are now changing subjects uh, to our second hour, and we're really excited to have Alan Hawks back um, to talk about subdivision surfaces um, and uh, something that I have to admit took me a long time to come around. Sub-D surfaces have been around for a long time. Um, uh, I remember there was a, a, a artist named Bay Rate. I don't know if, you, if, if Alan knows him or not, but he was using a, a, a very... I remember him showing sub-D surfaces to a couple of us at Lucasfilm in, you know, 1998 or something like that. And just watching him model was amazing. And then I opened it up and I was like, I don't understand this at all. <laughs> like, where's my booleans? Where's my, where's my, I need booleans. I need some C curves. I need, I need all these other things. And I just would build everything mechanically. But watching someone who actually really understands these sub-D services, I think are, is, 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 I've gotten much more into modeling uh, with them. I'm still not an expert at it, um, but uh, but I thought it'd be fun to have Alan um, kind of come in and talk a little bit about them, show some examples. Uh, Alan, can you explain a little bit about how sub-Ds work? Sure. Well, you kind of got into it a little bit. So probably good to have a bit of a framework about, you know, people hear the term sub-D, what does it actually mean? So you have in the 3D modeling workflow, you have polygon workflow, you have sub-D workflow, and then you have NURBS, basically. Those are the three main formats that you use. And uh, sub-D is basically something in between. It allows you to get some of the advantages that you would get out of NURBS. If you think of the difference between pixels and vector art, that's kind of the difference between polygons and, you know, NURBS where you're you're defining a curve mathematically instead of faceted with, you know, pixels and the, or polygons. And NURBS stand for non-uniform rational B-splines. Yes, I know that. Very good. I'm just letting it for everybody else. No, not for you. <laughs> not for you. <laughs> so, so people wonder, what does that mean? I was proud of myself. I'm like, I know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the, sub D is short for subdivision. I know that too. <laughs> well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about NURBS, which which uh, is affected by sub D affects sub D surfaces, is that um, is that the you know they're B splines, right, or splines, 
splines were used in ships. You know, these, there are these metal bars. And when you think about, a lot of times we talk about weights and weighting things. The spline was there and they actually attached weights to it to pull it one way or the other so that they could build the form of the ship. And that's where, you know, a lot of this stuff um, comes from. We, we, you know, a lot of stuff goes back a long way. Um, anyway, go ahead and take it away. No. Oh, it's all good. So, so yeah. So what we, these sub D's, the industry in general, the 3D, I should say the 3D rendering industry for the most part kind of settled on subdivision. Um, NURBs are mostly still used for CAD, but not necessarily for 3D animation type of product, products. So, uh, and so why yeah, do you think we settled there. It's just ease of use, I think. Um, it's much easier to rig and distort and move uh, and texture, I think, subdivision surfaces. So, but I'm not 100% sure why, because there's definitely advantages. Uh, NURBs just right. uh, kind of, again, it, it, it stuck with the CAD side of things. Like when we're getting a CAD, CAD is usually done in NURBs and then we have to convert it. Well, I think a lot of times for, for me, the, the, you know, NURBS, it just feels more precise. I know that you can build very precise things with sub D services, but when you're used to it, when you come from a NURBS background, you feel like, well, that's like, I can define that perfectly, you know, and sometimes yeah. sub D, it takes like a lot of work to try to get to the same I thing. I think you just answered your own question, Alex, because you need those super tight tolerances in CAD, but you don't necessarily need those in visual effects. You just right. need and close enough. Because right? a lot of times, especially like when we deal with cars, we're dealing with continuity over the surface. And so we have to have continuity of, of sometimes, you know, um, five degrees of continuity where it's really, you know, there's no divot, there's no any kind of turn. And again, I think a really talented sub D surface uh, modeler can get those, get the same equivalent, but not very many. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, but go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so subdivision is basically it's, it's a, it's a polygon workflow, but the polygon topology is defined in such a way that it will smooth effectively. So you get uh, polygons, generally speaking, are much easier to model in, but you don't get the advantage of smooth, smoothing and whatnot. Um, so basically you're going to be modeling in a polygon based workflow, keeping in a few rules and regulations, so to speak, to make sure that things sub D effectively. Um, now, so now are you set up, are you set up to screen share? Are you yeah, able to show us some share. stuff? Yeah, I can kind of show you. I can kind of break it down to its core yeah. elements, so to speak. All right. You see in my screen? I see your screen. All right. So. Let me try to explain this at a most basic level. And we're in we're in Modo, right? Yeah, I'm going to use Modo. You can the, the principle applies no matter the software you use, but I usually do modeling in Modo, so that's what I'm using. Sounds great. As with most anything, you always start with a cube, right? So we're just going to break it down to its most fundamental element uh, is a cube. So I'm going to take one face of this cube actually and describe what is a subdivision. First of all, this is a polygon, right? Polygon face. And if I were to subdivide this, uh, there's a couple of ways to subdivide it. First of all, I could just literally, let me just explain what a subdivision is in general, where the term comes from. A subdivision is literally just taking a polygon and dividing it in two ways. So I have now, instead of one polygon, I have four. I've just divided or subdivided this polygon. What subdivision does, and go backwards a step, is actually smooths the round edges of a polygon 
or the square edges into round edges. So I'm now going to do a subdivision smooth in the way that you would typically see. So I'm going to divide this and you can see how it smoothed it, right? And if I divide this again, you can see this is getting smoother and smoother and smoother. Okay. And it's still These, flat, right? It's it's still, it's not, it starts to look like a sphere, but it's still, that's just flat. Right. I just took one face. I'm just showing yep. you a single, uh, a single face here, but this kind of explains the concept. Now I'm showing you, uh, I've heard it referred to a subdivision can be a hard subdivision or soft subdivision. A hard subdivision actually has pixels that you, uh, you know, uh, or vertices that you can edit. But when you're talking about a subdivision, so what I'm going to do now is subdivide the surface. Actually, let me go back and get a new cube here. So if I press D, D, D to divide. So I'm dividing the surface over and over. It's getting smooth and it's creating this additional topology. So if I could, this is like a an actual subdivision. So if I go here and actually, um, this time I'm not going to create a hard subdivision. I'm just going to smooth it or subdivide it. So you can see, you see the so you're not So there's still a cube that is defining, there's one big cube or that's defining the, the second one, right? Or right. One. So, so what's happening here is this first one, I'm just showing it. I'm showing you what happens when behind the scenes, so to speak, when you actually subdivide a surface, the software is actually going in creating all these little polygons. They're just not editable. So this one you can see is actually, sorry, this thing keeps popping up. Uh, this one is actually just a cube. And, and the real subdivided. The, and if and you would, look closely, you can see all the squares in there. And would the advantage be that that uh, essentially, you know, with the second one, everything you grab, you, you're, you, you, it's all little squares. Like you can't. You, you, you can't edit this. All you can do is preview this. This right. is just to show you what's going on, the math that's going on behind the scenes. Right. This particular one here is just to demonstrate what's happening yep. when you subdivide something. It's smoothing it, right? Right. So if I divide this again, you can see this is uh, very faceted, but it it's it smooths out. So uh, the challenge with this is um, you, you can see the advantages. I can just... Uh, I can infinitely like zoom in. I can I can assign a value to the software for how many times it subdivides, and basically it makes a a really nice even curved surface with very few polygons, right? Um, but one of the challenges of it is it doesn't hold on to edges. That's so you have to you have to model it in a very specific way so that it holds on to actual edges, right? So for example, if I you can do edges. And one of two ways you can, well, there's actually a few ways. One is just by adding additional uh, geometry. So for example, if I go to edge mode, let's say I select an edge here. I'm going to select these four edges. I'll just bevel those. And you can see, I'm not sure if you can see this. You see what it's doing? It's creating additional geometry here. Can you see that? Yeah, yep, I can see it. All right, so then... When I smooth it, same thing. Look at the difference between the bottom, right? The bottom is still rounded like a ball, but the top is holding on to that edge. So that's basically what it is. So subdivision surfaces allow you to 
model in polygon model mode. Um, but then the ultimate goal is to smooth it or subdivide it. And you need to model it in such a way that you maintain sharp edges and whatever you need. So, so how do you approach modeling something with, with, with this technique? And that's kind of a broad, <laughs> that's a broad subject. Um, pretty much, I always start, I start with uh, a polygon workflow. If you're familiar with uh, modeling and polygons, I start broad. I start with very, very few polygons. Um, I don't need if I know if I need to share for this. So I start with very few polygons and just kind of block everything in as simply as possible. Just just forming the basic outer mesh, right? Just the most basic structure. And then you only go in and add detail and refine basically where so, you need it. So you, because there's a couple different ways to approach that I think sometimes is, is one is to, um, is to start with, you know, as you said, modeling something out. Um, I, in the technique that I mean, I tend to approach is to, I start with a cube and I start and I put it into that smooth version and I start you know, sculpt, not sculpting it, but, but adding geometry where I want to add geometry, you know, you know, like I don't, a lot of, good. It's like a lot of extruding. Everything starts with a cube for me. Uh, so, so there's, you know, you talk to 10 different modelers, you're going to get 10 different exactly. ideas over, over how to model something. Yeah. Um, and everything has its own challenges, but for the most part, I'm always starting with a cube and then I, you know, you extrude, Right. Expand, you you know, you can block. Like if something. you were gonna if you were gonna build like a cup with a with a handle, how would you approach that in in sub D? Just extruding. I mean, do you want me to try to walk yeah. through it in real time here? Put, I want to put you on. You're put gonna you on put me on the spot, aren't you? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I don't put my model. Unless in you school. want to model something else, but if, but but it gives right, people well, sense of it. Let me let me uh, share my screen again. And you didn't warn me about this, Alex, but <laughs> I think I'm up to the task. Let's try. All right, so let's say we were going to model um, a mug, right? Yep. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. As usual, I'll start with a cube. What I'll probably do is delete the top and bottom polygons out of there. So now I just have a cube with no top and bottom, mm -hmm. right? And then I will divide that. You see how it's becoming smoother. Maybe divide that again, right? So now I have effectively a cylinder. And then I'll select this bottom thing here. Maybe bevel that in. Extrude. I'm doing what's called an extrude. So let me go into, I'm going to keep it in polygon mode. Okay, so let me extrude. Yeah. And when you extrude, you're, you're actually um, adding more geometry to it. Yeah, so I'm I'm so used to using keyboard shortcuts. I'll just kind of explain to you what I'm doing mm -hmm. here. But basically, so look at the geometry I just created on the bottom here, right? So I'm kind of just creating an additional polygons on the bottom. And if I were to smooth this now, you can see what that looks like. And then what I might do is uh, there's something called a thicken. Polygon, let's see, thicken. Let's go ahead and try and thicken that. You see what that's doing? And that's, it's essentially extruding from all the surfaces directly outward, right? right. 
Yeah. So you can see it's still it, that's exactly what it's doing. It's a specific function that's meant to add, you know, layers to your mug, so to speak, uh, or depth to your mesh, I should say. And then I can. Uh, to add a handle, I'm not. You're. I'm going to get into my perfectionist tendencies and actually yeah. try to make this like a really good mug. But let me just make a mug. So the next no, thing is make a, make a great mug. Make We've got time. Mug. We've got time. Make it great. All right. Uh, hold on. I'm just going to do basic. So I'm looking now. The next thing I need to do is need to add a handle. All right. So if I'm going to add a handle in here, I need basically two polygons. But we have a topology problem here. Topology problem is I probably need, let's say I need these two polygons here, but I actually need another row of polygons in order for this to work because this is too close to this edge. So what I'll probably do, select this loop, bevel that, move it up. And now I can select two handles here. Might need to adjust the... Yeah, let me do it this way. You literally put me on the spot here, Alex. All right, so let me go here, think, here. All right, so now one of the I have... best things to do is see. So <laughs> it's easy when someone has a demo set up, but there's something really useful about seeing an artist that knows how to do this and have them think through it because it's not it's not something that you just do step to step to step. You fiddle, you know. You go, oh, that that worked, or that didn't work, and so I think that it's a. Uh, well, you know what's interesting is uh, a good modeler, even the best modelers, you you basically plan on modeling something three times, right? First time is a practice run, the second time is to work out the bugs, and the first time is your final. Yeah. So you know, just to, because there's infinite ways of doing things. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to bevel this out, right? Let me say, is that beveling or extruding? It's extrude. I'm sorry. There's there's different ways of doing it, but this mm -hmm. this was technically extrude. Mm -hmm. Extrude, yes. Um. So, and then what I probably do is a, a, a bridge. Let's try a bridge. Well, I can do it. Actually, I'll prefer to do it manually here. What I'll do is bevel. And by the way, there's some modeler out there that's probably analyzing this thing he's doing it all wrong. I'm not a modeler. <laughs> for the record, I haven't really modeled for a while. I mean, I can. Uh, then we'll bring these two together with a bridge. <laughs> pathetic. But then I would go through, there's the structure, right? So right. then I would see how that smooths out. And just like that, I mean, you have a reasonably... Yeah, and you say you can do it with while it's still in the smooth mode. You don't have to go back out to the polygon. No, it's, it's kind, kind of, of a habit. Doing. It's a habit. Uh, you mo Most sub-D modelers are just constantly going back and forth because where this looks pretty good smooth, and actually that's not too great. <laughs> so like the, the polygon flow isn't the best. So then I might go in, let's say, and I'll keep this super simple, but here's a basic mug. Uh, let's say I needed to tighten up these edges because you can see this is too rounded. Mm -hmm. So I might go in here, double click, uh, kind of bring both these. I'm selecting both these, ed what are called edge loops. Right. And then I'll bevel that edge down to 
create some additional geometry. And then when I smooth it, it'll be much cleaner, right? Right. So, so that's basically it. So you would just go through and ultimately what I just did here was build a super basic. I'm probably going to fix this here just because it's driving me nuts. It's going to drive me crazy. Yes. All right. So maybe smooth out a little bit. Uh, you're building the the basic framework of polygons and it always comes down, no matter how good of a model you are, it's always going to come down to pushing and pulling vertices. So, right. you know, but that's basically it. That's what subdivision surfaces do. Yeah. And it's, you know, because really what the, the way I try to think about sub D surfaces is oftentimes is that you're building a cage, you know, that that's pulling, you know, a cage that's kind of pulling on this kind of soft thing. And as you, you know, add more of those, um, you know, as you add a sub D because it's, when we think about sub subdivision surfaces, it's a extrapolation of how the, a, a NURBS or Bezier or B splines get calculated, you know, is that, you know, if, if we have the, um, you know, if we think about a cage, you know, like this, you know, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, now we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, this is a direction that we want to go, but we're being pulled over here. So it's going to go like this. I mean, in the, that, that's what the cage does here. And as we, if we pull this out, it'll pull it up this way like this, you know? And so it's, it's basically, this is a hard piece that's basically pulling these surfaces. And if we add another one here and then pull that out to like this, then that's going to get harder. You know, because it's got it, this is this has got more weight, you know, to it with that with that piece. But it's in, but in sub D, it's it's in three dimensions. <laughs> you know, not yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Basically, so what you're doing uh, is defining those vertices. What you defined as a cage, your polygon points basically become those. Uh, like the points that would be on a Bezier path or something, right? Mm -hmm. You you're they become uh, the rounding points. So your your uh, polygon is a cage, and then it smooths everything kind of within that polygon cage. That's what you're doing when you're when you're modeling a, a, a in polygon mode. You're modeling the cage, and then it smooths everything out using right. very similar algorithms to uh, a curve, you know, an Illustrator curve or a Photoshop path or anything like that. It's very similar. And what do you think are the hardest things to model with sub D? Um, highly mechanical surfaces product, you know, so hard. Uh, it's excellent for sub. It's excellent for organic surfaces, soft body surfaces. Um, but when you get into uh, products, when you have to have super tight tolerances and you have a whole bunch of different parts and different pieces. Uh, it's it that can be really really challenging because even if it looks good from far away, you zoom in on it and the tolerances just aren't there. You see, the process for adding tight edges is not highly accurate. It's just like, yeah, that looks good enough, you know. And so, and the problem is, you get into the same thing when you're pulling those little edges. You you a lot of times I find that I have to. I have to group them and make sure that I'm acting as a group with them, you know, moving all of these to, you know, widening these all out together or I'm pulling them all in. Um, I think that the temptation when you first get started is to start pulling edges individually and then you can never get continuity back, you know, to, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the more you want to be very careful, and this is where I get back to the you usually you're going to model things three times and you want to be careful when you add that detail. Every single polygon you add, it's adding more detail, but it's adding also adding another layer of challenge in manipulating your mesh. So so if you're going in, for example, you saw how I tightened up the edges. If you if you have a broad curve and you want to tighten up that curve, you add an edge loop. There's also something called edge weighting you could use. Uh, mm -hmm. But you add that edge loop in there, and then let's say you do that again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and each one has its own tolerance, and you don't have any continuity in your model. So typically what you want to do is just get that base structure in there and then go and add your edge loops all at once with one bevel function. And that way you make sure there's continuity and consistency that all those radiuses on all those curves are, are synchronous, so to speak. They all line up. So now, yeah. I, and as you do the, as, and then it does make it easier from a texture perspective because the UVs are a little bit more aligned than, than what you would have with a NURBS or polygon surface. Would well, you say? I, yeah, UVs yeah. are a different battle. <laughs> That's probably a whole nother, a whole nother, That's a whole nother subject. I, I just, I just pulled a second hour. I out ignore and... UVs until the end. I don't even think mm -hmm. about what's going on with UVs are usually, you know, an absolute mess. Um, and mm -hmm. I don't even try to create clean UVs until I know that my mesh is pretty much where it needs to be. So right. yeah. let's jump into the questions. And uh, first question coming into us from Douglas Carmichael. Can you use subdivision surfaces with Blender? Uh, yeah, yeah. Blender is fully compatible with subdivision. So I think that I think that subdivision surfaces is in almost every app at this point. I mean, I guess all the major apps. I mean, CAD CAD may not have it. Yeah, it's kind of an industry standard, and one of the benefits to it is because. It is based on a polygon mesh. It's based on, and that goes back God knows how long, decades, right? So, and even the most basic, you know, OBJ format can save things out in, in polygon format. And as long as it can support poly format, it supports subdies. Subdies are a refined version of polygon for, of, of modeling. So, uh, it, it's pretty much universal, not just across Blender, but pretty much any 3D app worth its salt is going to support subdies. I found that I've, I've been able to bring in sometimes game assets, lower resolution assets, so on and so forth, and I just throw them into a, just just put them under a subd node, and they it smooths them out. You know, they're they're rough, and then I can go in and refine them. But I but I find that I don't. You know, I'm always surprised at how you can get a, a lot out of a, an asset that wasn't even created for sub D. Um, if you start there, you know, if you like it, and a lot of times I use it to, you know, I'll get some rough geometry from, you know, 3D Trader or whatever that, or CG Trader or whatever. And it'll be like, I had this little house and I wanted to have the houses have nice little rounded edges, you know, so they look like little miniature models. And I found that the ones that came in were just hard edged and everything else. But by converting them to sub D, and then, and then so, you know, just playing, you know, just beveling out some of those edges, we were able to get something that, or I was able to get something that looked more uh, gingerbread, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, absolutely. Not that, because, you know, a lot of things that were meant to be modeled in Polygon, if you wanted to go to Sub D, usually mm -hmm. you can start with what you have and just go in and clean it up so that it's, that it smooths. You just got to think about how it's going to end up smoothing, right? Right. And, you can just go in and add the geometry, clean up 
clean up the the model. But unless there's like a ridiculous amount of topology, for the most part, you can start with a polygon model and convert it to sub D just by going in and cleaning it up. Next question. From Dave Troutman. <clears throat> Pardon me. In Edmonton, Canada, polygon count is one of the biggest issues in rendering time, as I understand it. Does SubD work to improve rendering time and maintain quality? It's not as big of an issue as it used to be. It's computers are much more powerful than they, than they used to. So what happens is um, when you when you render in or when you create in SubD, the polygon count is much higher than you think it might be because even though you don't have editable polygons, the software behind the scenes is still generating many polygons. And if you want to take it a layer further, there's something called displacement maps and displacement maps run into micro poly, uh, micro poly tessellation where you literally get millions and millions and millions of tiny little polygons. And that's where system memory and video card limitations and CPU things, that's where that's going to become a problem. So for the most part, subdies aren't going to be any softer on your system than uh, than a, than a high-resolution polygon mesh would be anyway. So, Well, and one of the big advantages for subd surfaces, if you're building the core geometry in sub, subdivision surfaces, you can also, uh, your ability to do different levels of detail, so LODs, um, becomes a lot easier. So you build you build something out that is um, you know that you build a you know for games a lot of times it's a gun or it's a helmet or something like that and you build it in sub D and you say when it's at this distance I want all those I want all those all that geometry but when it's further away you can't tell the difference and so let's go to a lower resolution one now if you built that with polygons or with splines it can be a lot, a lot more complicated you know to how do you remodel that but when we're building them and I think this is one of the reasons we see a lot in games. If you're building them as that, you can build five, ten, you know, levels of detail that are going out there, and then and then it's simply swapping those models um, as it, um, you know, as it gets closer. And you know, f for the modeler, it's just changing the, oftentimes just changing the how it's being um, interpolated. Yep. There's actually um, you brought up an interesting point. Context is extremely important when it comes to modeling because you got to keep in mind. You know, how am I going to view this thing? Am I going to view this from really far away? Am I going to view it up close? Um, I had a tendency early on because of my perfectionist tendencies to over model everything and zoom way in at a thousand to one, make sure it looked good at any scale, only to realize that was a waste of time. So, uh, so yeah, you got to keep in mind what your model is going to be used for. That's a bit of practical advice so you don't waste your time and energy. One of the things that's funny is is almost all people that came from print do that. You know, so if they if they come from print, they're just used to I'm going to zoom in and and have it work at every resolution or every view. And yeah. if, if as a person who hires different people to do 3D, I would much rather have that than have the other side of it, which is when people come in from other other backgrounds, sometimes games, sometimes other things. They model like, oh, it's good enough for where I'm at, and then there's not enough detail there, and you can feel it. You know, a lot of times you can feel detail. I think that's the thing. I think it's one of the things that people really like about um, physical when they when they say, oh, we didn't use any CG in this movie. What they, you know, I think what they're rarely does that. Is that actually true? <laughs> like, so, so like it's like they're, they're usually fibbing a little, a little, we'll just call yeah. it fibbing, not, not bold face lies, which is what it is, um, but fibbing, fibbing. And the, um, and, uh, and so they, 
they say we didn't use any CG, but what they're really trying to get away from is that kind of artificialness that we see inside of um, uh, CG where there's not enough detail, right? Yeah. Well, it's a fine, it's a fine line, right? You got I'm the first question I always ask is what what is the final context? What is what are we using this for? Because I don't want to overbuild something. If it's a general asset when you don't know what's going to be used for, then you just build to meet every demand. Um, but mm -hmm. there's nothing more frustrating than overbuild something, spending way, way, way too much time getting it where you need to be and realizing it's only going to be this big in the background. You're not really going to notice anything. So we had, we had, uh, for episode one, we had, um, uh, there was a wall of shame. Uh, it literally it was called the wall of shame. Doug Chang had this thing called the wall of shame. It was all the stuff, all the ships that, that, uh, George had rejected, you know? So it was like the, he was just, he had the stamp that he would put on it. You reject or, you know, whatever, or accept it or whatever. And there was a whole wall. And anytime we had, uh, ships in the background, it was always, Doug would just, he's not going to draw something. This gets back into your level of detail. Yeah. He's not going to draw a whole nother ship and spend half a day designing a new ship when he's got plenty of ships that can be somewhere, somewhere off in the distance that aren't hero ships. And to your point, they were all like, um, a lot of times we had to put them into particle systems. If you look at Coruscant, you know, Coruscant had most of those ships were, were those wall of shame ships because they were all like, you know, we had to build them all at like 500 polygons to, you know, put them out there because there'd be like 2000 of them that were that we're floating around. Let's go to the next question. Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, thanks, Alan, for being here. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not a modeler, but I dabble in 3D. And if you're using stock models like TurboSquid, I don't know if I'm saying a bad word here, uh, how much control would you have of sub-D surfaces uh, uh, within that model? Can you go back and how far? Um, well, TurboSquid's kind of... Uh hit or miss you have to pay attention because that's actually a community forum where most anybody can submit their own models and and you, if you look at the description you'll kind of figure out some sometimes it'll say it's already modeled for sub d it'll smooth you know cleanly but then you actually get the model and it doesn't necessarily right uh some of them are modeled for in strictly in polygon mode but might have the proper tessellation and uh, resolution to to meet your goals so it really depends on a case-to-case -case scenario, but as a general rule, I, I'd say that uh, if you get a clean model and it's only modeled in polygon form, the first thing I would ask is, getting back to what Alex and I were just talking about, is, well, will those polygons hold up smooth enough for what I'm rendering it for as is? Because before you're going to take that step to go any further and say, I'm going to go in and clean this model so it subdies, you might not need it. But if, you know, like I said, if it's far away, if you're not really depending on the context of the usage. Uh, but if you need a, a really high, high detailed beauty shot and you definitely need that subdivision level quality modeling, then you go back in and model it. But assuming the topology is well done and it was modeled effectively, which can vary widely on TurboSquid, um, it shouldn't be too big of a deal to go in and just clean it up depending on what the what it is to to clean it up so that it will smooth effectively. And a worst case scenario, let's say you get a really, really good model from TurboSquid, but the topology is terrible for what you're using. Uh, you can go in and retopo something. You can use it as a template and literally go in and draw a brand new topology right on top of it if you need to. So, Yeah, we even do snap to surface. You know, just when you're talking about rebuilding that, you can say, I just want to, I want to build, rebuild this topology and I want, every time I, I, 
click on a, a point, I want it to snap to the surface of that model. And I don't know if you use that much, uh, Alan, but it's... Oh, it's I've, I've used it before. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit distant from modeling. I haven't actually mm -hmm. done active modeling. A couple pet projects I've done, mm -hmm. uh, but we have modelers that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, if you get, you know, every every uh, subject within 3D, there's, a, there's multiple disciplines and the way you get really, really fast at something is just by doing it over and over and over. So we have our modeler that can go through and build something 10 times faster than I can. Why? Right. Because he does it over and over and over and over again. So I, I haven't actively modeled in a long time. But. I, 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 have, I haven't either. I mean, I, I, I build models as I need them, um, but a lot of times I'm hiring somebody to, to, do, to do those three models. I, I still am capable of building stuff, and I, most of my modeling is for 3D printing. You know, it's, yeah. and, and so, you know. Well, that's a whole other subject because that has its own requirements, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably another subject for a Tuesday. Is, another is subject for another do you, day. Do you do any 3D printing? I have a 3D printer around here and I've printed all of one thing with it. Um, so <laughs> I, I got it with the intention of being like, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And then of course it got, you know, kind of. Which one did you get? I have to even go look. I bought it three years ago. <laughs> I, can, I don't, I don't remember the exact Here's name one. of it. That's cool. The worst part is, is that mine, so mine sat around for, uh, Mine sat around for probably four months. I bought it and it just sat in a box like, oh, I'm gonna have to get around to figuring how this is gonna work. And then of course it took 45 minutes and I printed my first thing. Like in 45 minutes, I had an object out of there and then it just ran. I literally ran that thing 24 seven for a solid three or four weeks. Like everything I could think of, I just print things and and just was just excited about it. And now I use it, you know, it's like every couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, I need a little piece of something or I need it. And it was the funny thing was, is that watching, um, you know, I, we did this show in Hallmark, uh, uh, Hallmark Cards. They have a lot of 3D printers, as, as it turns out. Uh, it turns out, you know, all those little cards that you have to like open up and they do something, they have 3D printers so they can prototype all of that. Really? And they, okay. you know, they, so, they, so they have all these 3D printers and this whole division that just just does the R and D for all the cool things and um, that that you have there. And but I was when I got there, we were loading in first thing in the morning. It was like six a.m. for a noon event or something. And I was talking to the guy, and he was the printer was running. I was like, "What are you printing? Like, what card are you working on?" He's like, "Oh no, it's just a pipe fitting for my for for the house." <laughs> like he's like, I let, I let it run overnight. He goes, he goes, you know, he just and and it was the 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 idea that he would just build this little piece of something that needed to work on something else that, and that he could just kind of just use the print as glue, you know, for that was, I found it to be fascinating. Uh, we got another question here. What's the next question? From uh, Jack Rappel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Jack asks, how does this fit in with USD, USDZ content creation? Have you done much USD work? I've only done it to the, you, you and I have discussed this a little bit. Um, I, I think it'll, I don't know, honestly, that, that NURBS are, are necessary for this because USDZ, I think, is pretty much meant to be a universal format that can load anywhere. And mm -hmm. I've only ever used polygons for that. So, yeah, I, I don't, I think that, I think that, I think that it's still supported. I think that you can still have, I actually don't know the answer to this either is whether USDZ is going to support that. The universal scene description should support it and should have um, a basic, um, basic geometry support for that. And I'm trying to think of, 
objects, almost every object I've used in USDZ has been straight polygons, to your point. Yeah, like that, I, that's where I'm at, too. I've yeah. baked everything out as a, as a straight polygon because it's a real-time, you know, well... USDZ is not a real-time. USDZ is is a transport. For those listening, um, uh, it's universal scene description, and that carries lights, animations, textures, um, uh, geometry, everything that you need for a, a scene. And Pixar built this out as a, as a way to move whole scenes from one artist to another. Apple saw it and said, why don't, you know, Apple and Pixar, you know, they kind of talk to each other every once in a while. Um, it, might, it used to be owned by the same guy. And so, um, so anyway, uh, they... Apple looked at it and said, why don't we zip this? <laughs> and it's not a, not a folder anymore. It's, it's an actual. And, uh, and so you end up with a zip. So a USDZ is just the Pixar's universal scene description that is zipped up so that it's easier to transport. And, um, and so the USDZ is really important for a lot of us because it's probably going to be a big deal in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so so uh, you know, if Apple actually puts out the rumored uh, goggles, uh, of some kind of whatever they call them, I.I.s or <laughs> whatever, I.I., a little ship. Um, anyway, um, but uh, uh, if they do that, then then we'll see, you know, there's going to be a strong demand for USDZ models because th- that there's going to be a lot of people building for them. Um, the biggest thing that, and one of the reasons I want to make sure that we start talking about geometry, and this is very new for our group, so, you know, really talking about this stuff is that this is uh, going to be an astronomical uh, market <laughs> like it, there's there's a uh, you know building out and it's and what's the funny thing is i don't think it's going to be the headset um i think it's going to be keynote you know i think keynote's going to be a big deal when when keynote supports usdz the ability to just take your model i've been building i built a lot of as we've talked about in the first hour i built a lot of keynote decks and the ability to just take an object that isn't quite what the angle that I wanted and rotate it to where I want has been something I've thought about for 25 years. <laughs> like, you know, like, why can't I just, I want to take this phone model and it doesn't, the, it doesn't fit my scene. I just want to turn it around and, and not even, no one even interacts with it later. I just want the object to be what I want it to be when I'm looking, you know, at that angle. Now, I think they're, they're going to add a lot more where you can rotate it around. You can click on it. If you send someone a, a keynote, you'll be able to click on it and it'll pop up and in your, in your thing or in your phone and, you know, I think that's what's coming, and it may happen as early as uh, a couple weeks from now. So, and that's when you know there's a lot of suddenly there'll be a huge demand because all the Turbo Squid stuff is not going to not ninety five percent of the Turbo Squid geometry won't work. You know, that's the you know just it'll take too much work to to get it back up again. Well, it actually brings up a good question that I have to look into because I've only been using it for with Polygon. The the advantage of this scene is it's a self contained self everything's. Mm-hmm. contained within itself and you can basically have a digital asset almost like a pdf was to you know uh, instead of a word file you can use pdf you can open it anywhere it bakes in right. your font information everything it's kind of like that but for a 3d asset and it exists as its own digital asset independent of any other software really right just need yeah. something to read it uh but i have not used it with nerves so it's a good question i have to research it next question from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, Gordon asks, when a model is constructed with subdivision surfaces like humans, how smooth is the surface during animation? It's, well, depending on your settings. So if you understand what's happening with subdivision, uh, subdivision surfaces, basically what it's doing is dividing it and then dividing it again. And that's that's basically, you're you're telling the software how many times to divide it and usually that's contextually based based on how close you are to the model 
So for example, it might only be need to be subdivided once when you're zoomed way out, but you're zoomed way in and you can start to see that faceting. Uh, you can even run a script that changes the faceting based upon how far away the object is to the camera. So that's a that's like a, a level setting. It's usually anywhere between one to a maximum, I think, would be five because it doubles the polygon count every single time you you divide it. So the the ideal is that it's perfectly smooth, depending on the context of what you're rendering, that you never notice any faceting. But generally speaking, uh, the the subdivision level is going to be between two and geez, maybe five. That's getting up there. So. That's great. But it should be perfectly smooth. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Very welcome. It's great. Thank great. To, uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, Alan and Nick and I and other people are going to be talking more and more about a lot of these 3D assets. I, th I feel like it's something that, especially as we start looking at what's about to happen in, in a lot of areas, whether it's AR, um, whether it's, you know, if you look at Adobe Substance, you know, there's a lot of 3D stuff that they're paying attention to um, and, and a lot of other bits and pieces. I think that it's more and more important as video and content producers that we understand how to generate 3D objects, or at least understand what we're looking at um, and, and how to work with them and how to use them. And, and so we'll be talking more about geometry creation like today, but also texturing and lighting and animation and those types of things. Um, you know, you've had, we've had Nick to come in and talk about motion capture um, and, and a lot of other and tracking. And so that's what Tuesdays are gonna be uh, about. Um, and we'll keep on uh, adding those things together. So um, so stay tuned for more of those. And if you've got ideas uh, for those days, uh, make sure to throw those into the second hour suggestions of things that you'd like to see um, for those for those second hours. Um, again, thanks to Alan for for coming in and sharing his time uh, with us. And um, great to and be here. And thanks to the rest of the panelists. Of course, we can't do this without you uh, answering all the questions in the first hour um, and uh, and really making sure that uh, we do this every day. <laughs> you know, so it's it's really powerful. Thanks to the producers for all the great questions, keeping uh, keeping the show moving forward. We don't have a big plan most days. The plan is is that we're going to answer your questions. So uh, the producers, we depend on you to uh, throw those questions in uh, every every hour. And, uh, and then, of course, thanks to the incredible team that puts this all together in the back end. Seven days a week. Uh, and if you're interested in that, check out in the emails. So you can check out the volunteering. If you're interested in being on the panel, um, uh, you can check out uh, being a pan join the panel uh, in the emails that we send out. Um, it's a it's a great uh, it's a great little club. So uh, so definitely check that out. Um, all right, uh, we traveled. Oh wait, hold on, wait for it, wait for it. I have I, I, it's hidden in a window that's deep down below. Uh, Fifty eight thousand miles today, ninety four thousand kilometers, and that is. 465 million, million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Nice haircut, uh, Alex. I, I, I did that a while ago. I, I cut it. Spring in 3D cut. now. Yeah. Sub, he subsurfaced it. Subsurface whispering. <laughs> The final cut is available. Wait, I'm trying. Oh. Yeah. Oh, see it. Oh, wait. Uh, I... Oh, no. Final. You can hear me tapping. There's, there's your ASMR. Similar tapping. You seeing it? <laughs> 